Will vehicle sales stay strong? And what happens to regulations with the new administration? Those are just two of the questions that the auto industry and its chief economists are looking at for 2017 and talking about on this edition of AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Today's show, we're going to be looking at the automotive industry through the eyes of economists, and not just the U.S. auto industry, by the way, the global industry. In fact, we're going to look at the world this way, because joining me today are three economists, including Emily Kalinske-Morris. She's the chief economist with the Ford Motor Company. Mustafa Mohataram is the chief economist with General Motors. And Charles Chesborough is the executive director of strategy and research and the senior economist at the OESA. That's the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. And I want to thank all three of you for joining me here today. Hi, Thanks for having us. Well, let's get into it. I got a lot of topics that I'd like to start with, but boy, I don't know how we talk about what's going on with the auto industry, the economy, and the world without talking about the new administration that's just taking over. And Mustafa, what do, why don't I start with you? What impact might a Trump administration have on the automotive industry? I think one has to be very careful. I mean, because we know what he said on the campaign trail. How much of that will actually be implemented, we don't know, so it gets into speculation. All I'll say is when you look at what, how the financial markets have reacted very, very positively, you look at consumer confidence, business confidence, you know, interest rates, you, na- you name it, they're all indicating that there's a general expectation that his administration will result in faster economic growth. So at this point, everybody is very happy, and we'll see. If, if this is sustained, that's obviously good news for the auto industry and U.S. auto sales. And, you know, they've been running at near record levels for two years now, and so my expectation is that the new norm is in the 17.5 million light, 17.5 to 18 million total industry going forward, and I don't think that's going to change. Emily, your thoughts on what a Trump administration might mean for the automotive industry? Well, I think there are a couple key areas of policy that obviously we'll all be watching. One is certainly going to be trade policy. The other, as Mustafa alluded to, are policies that may be directly supportive of economic growth, so potential for tax cuts or infrastructure spending. uh, Those would be beneficial. Certainly there would be some concerns uh, given the integrated nature of the auto industry. Um, Should we see significant changes in the trade regime that we have to adjust to, but I think we're going to have to wait and see how this all evolves going forward. Very good. We'll uh, we'll want to come back to that trade theme in a minute, but Charlie, I want to get your ideas on this too. Well, I I agree as well. I think uh, on the demand side, it could be a very big plus for the industry. Uh, uh, Certainly a tax cut for consumers uh, will help vehicle demand, uh, and that's something that's that's been thrown out there as as a possibility here. Uh, I guess the one negative that we can see in terms of what it would mean for consumers is uh, that interest rates could be going higher more quickly than what we are expecting otherwise. Uh, All of this spending and tax cuts may have uh, inflationary effects that may have forced the Fed to raise interest rates a little bit more quickly. That certainly would affect uh, the the cost of borrowing for consumers. Uh, And the rest of it was just, uh, we just don't know what his policies are going to be regarding the supply side. Yeah, okay. Emily, let's come back to trade because, you know, NAFTA was a central part of Donald Trump's uh, campaign. He says he's going to rip it up. He's going to put a 35 percent tax on products coming in from Mexico. But 
boy, this has got to scare everybody in the North American automotive industry because Mexico is such a critical component of the supply chain. Well, it is, and I think that the administration will be talking to a lot of their constituents and try to understand what's good about NAFTA, maybe things that they are interested in changing, and whether they do that through the agreement or through other sorts of agreements. I think fundamentally cooler heads will prevail and uh, the importance of, of trade to the industry, not just our industry, but others, will be recognized. Mustafa, what do you think? NAFTA. Well, you, you know me, I've worked for a long time on NAFTA, so I have a vested interest in this. But Explain again, a little bit, what was your background in, in NAFTA? Well, as they were negotiating the auto provisions, they were consulting very closely with the auto manufacturers, and I was the lead GM person in those discussions. So, so you're intimately knowledgeable with the, uh, the trade agreement. And I think I totally agree with Emily that once Mr. Trump discusses how the industry is so integrated, you know, with both manufacturers, with labor, and other interested parties, that he's going to come to the conclusion that dramatic changes in NAFTA will be very disruptive to the U.S. economy as well as the economies of Canada and Mexico. But clearly, you know, during the campaign, he was very emphatic that he wanted to see some changes in NAFTA. And, you know, the agreement has been in place for over 20 years now, and th a lot of things have changed. So, you know, it's a good thing to take a look at it again, whether, you know, some changes will be beneficial to the, all three countries. But we'll see how that plays out. But overall, I mean, when you look at our industry, it has become so integrated over the 20 years and prior to that with Canada under U.S.-Canada and Auto Pact. Those things are going to be very, very difficult to disentangle at this point in the game. But certainly, you know, there's room for improvement in the agreements. Charlie, what do you think? Well, I, I agree with uh, with both those comments. Uh, you know, NAFTA's been around for such a long time, it, it seems like it would be a real challenge to, to change the whole agreement uh, completely. Maybe a few tweaks here and there. Uh, it's hard to even pinpoint exactly what those would be. I would point out, though, that there are benefits to the U.S. economy from NAFTA being in place. How so? Well, there's certainly a number of jobs that are directly related uh, to exports to Mexico based here in the U.S., certainly within the supply base. But there's a $60 billion a year trade there is, there surplus is a, on the part of Mexico. That's right. But one of the, 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 uh, uh, the ideas behind NAFTA was well, we were going to raise incomes of folks in Mexico. And by raising those incomes, we were going to create new consumers that would actually be able to afford American products, as well as sort of reduce the, uh, the immigration from Mexico to the U.S., we're really starting to see the Mexican economy is taking off. Uh, the, the growth rate has been uh, better than the U.S. over the last number of years. Uh, the vehicle market has really started to, to improve. It's going to overtake Canada in terms of vehicle sales maybe by the end of this decade. So we are starting to see the, much of the talk about uh, new consumers being created in Mexico uh, is starting to really happen there. So if we reverse all of that, there may be uh, bigger repercussions from that than maybe we're, we're even thinking about right now. Isn't part of the problem that Mexico is a critical, low-cost source for parts and components that keep American plants globally competitive? And if you chop off that low-cost source, you're, you're actually going to hurt the global competitiveness of the U.S. manufacturing base. John, if you look at the global auto industry, and you said you were going to talk about the globe, the North American industry is integrated, you know, between Mexico, Canada, and the U.S., a lot of the labor-intensive work has moved to Mexico, and some of it is coming back from Asia into Mexico. If you go to Asia, the industry is Japan and Korea have the final assembly. A lot of the component 
work is done in Southeast Asian countries. And you're seeing a similar thing in, <clears throat> in Europe, where initially a lot of the labor-intensive work went to Portugal and Spain, and now it's moving into Central Europe, into Poland, Hungary. And so if the American industry has to compete, we need that integration. Otherwise, we lose a lot of our competitiveness. Let's move on to uh, another area, uh, Emily, regulations. You know, well, if, if you could advise the new administration on how it could look at regulations of the automotive industry to make it more competitive, any ideas on what you might advise them on? Well, I think one thing that the administration will likely be looking at are the regulations that are upcoming on fuel economy. And as a former businessman, hopefully the new president will take into account the considerations that businesses have in meeting those standards and the fact that we have to do that while serving our consumers to the best of our ability and recognize some of the market realities of that as we move toward the midterm review. So, uh, you know, the, the goal, of course, is uh, to hit over 50 miles to the gallon. It was 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. Now the EPA has said, well, that, that was uh, a target, not a hard goal. Uh, how, how could you fix CAFE? Well, I think um, probably we don't want to get into the details of that today, but I do think it's important to recognize the way that the market has shifted since the standards were originally set. And you're right, there have been some small adjustments made so far, but the fact that fuel prices are still so very low and the fact that we're still seeing challenges with consumer acceptance of some of the types of vehicles that would be needed you know, to meet those standards in the time frame set out, I think those are the areas that you would want to look at very closely. Other ideas, Charlie, what would you do to, to make regulation a little less onerous than it is right now? Well, certainly the uh, the requirements that were going to be implemented on the industry were going to be very difficult to achieve. And so I think there is a, a slight sigh of relief that maybe there's going to be a little bit of a pullback from that 54-mile-a-gallon uh, target for 2025. And I think the other policies that, that Trump has been talking about in terms of opening up more drilling in the U.S., getting uh, more aggressive on, on an energy policy here, uh, will likely keep energy prices, oil prices in particular, low for even longer. Uh, and that certainly is going to make uh, uh, more attractive to the consumers to keep buying the larger vehicles, which are where the real profits are being made for the industry. And just to go back to NAFTA for a minute, I think this is where one of the dangers is, is that many of the vehicles that are being built in Mexico are these small cars. It's just not profitable to build those in the U.S. And it may make us a little bit more vulnerable that if, if the, the big three decide to get out of making small cars and we have to rely on foreign sources for those vehicles, uh, the next time we do see any kind of an oil shock or something like that, it might make the U.S. market a little bit more vulnerable than we'd like to be. But Mustafa, couldn't it hurt the, the U.S. industry to, to get out of whack with what's going on in the rest of the world? Europe and China keep pushing for more electrics and, and tighter CO2 standards. And you take the U.S. out of that equation, it could actually make the U.S.-based manufacturers less competitive on the global stage. I, I, I think you need to be careful in how you make that assessment. The fact is they're separate markets, they're very large markets, and you can design and engineer products to each specific market. But I think I go back to what Emily said. It's really important that regulators look at how the market conditions have changed. I mean, when CAFE was originally agreed to, oil prices were hovering around $4. I mean, you know, 100 uh, hundred dollars yeah. a gasoline gallon. was four dollars a gallon oil was headed to 150 and the projections were that oil prices would continue to rise that was before the shale revolution that has changed 
the oil market forever. And our regulations have to reflect that. But, you know, you can't just go around saying change this aspect of the regulation. There are other elements to it. I mean, it's really important that we have a national standard. You know, we can't have every state trying to regulate uh, fuel economy or whatever, greenhouse gas emissions or whatever. So to me, it's equally important to maintain, you know, harmonized standards um, for, for the industry. And, you know, in terms of other things, I think clearly removing some of the obstacles to domestic energy production is important. And then, you know, I've been saying for some time that oil prices will be low for longer. Well, this will be even longer if that's done, if the Keystone pipeline is built, if some of the other pipelines that have been held up with litigation are completed. Because, you know, we move oil around, oil and natural gas around this country all over the place. Right now, you're seeing a lot of pipelines being reversed because so much natural gas is being produced in Pennsylvania and Ohio that, you know, you need to take it south. So I think one has to take a very big picture look at this and say, what have been the obstacles to growth? Why, in a recovery, we've averaged less than 2% GDP growth? and address those issues. And I think, you know, that's what I'm looking to see, is is there a willingness to do those things? The only other thing I would add, John, as well, is that uh, we may see a little bit more flexibility out of this administration in terms of what our uh, credits, uh, and in terms of specifically about off-cycle credits, uh, you know, not all fuel economy or gains in, in, in emissions are measured just out of the tailpipe or, uh, you know, the, the fuel economy you get on the vehicle. Uh, there's a lot of new technologies out there that are making vehicles and transportation more efficient in general. And, uh, and certainly maybe this administration might be willing to be more receptive to giving in the supply base uh, credit for some of these new technologies. Would you mean like car sharing? Uh, well, or? no, more like uh, uh, adaptive cruise control, so that traffic can move more smoothly. Um, you know, maybe in the aggregate, it, it reduces fuel economy, reduces emissions, but it's very difficult to measure on a per vehicle uh, basis. Those types of credits that, that yeah. uh, might spur more activity. Well, I know in particular the EPA has already started looking into that. In fact, the, the California Air Resources Board has already started looking into that, looking at the more efficiencies in the total system rather than trying to make each individual unit more efficient. That's right. So, in fact, what do you all think about this uh, mobility? Uh, uh, GM and Ford are plunging headlong into this. Uh, we're seeing uh, an explosion in the use of ride sharing like Uber and Lyft and the like. And Emily, I'll start with you because some people say, boy, with all the sharing going on, we're not going to need as many cars in the future. Others say, no, 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 no. With all the sharing going on and the costs going down, more and more people will use cars for mobility. So we're going to need more. How do you think it might shake out? I think one thing that's helpful is to think about it instead of the number of vehicles, although we're all very trained to do that, think about the number of miles traveled. And so if we're talking about an environment where you make traveling by vehicle cheaper per mile, the likely thing to happen, right, we got a bunch of economists sitting here, the price of something goes down, people are going to demand more of it. So I think there is a strong possibility that the number of miles traveled would go up in that kind of an environment. At the same time, you could have fewer vehicles 
but if you're putting more miles on those vehicles, you're going to be turning them over more quickly. Use them up more quickly. Right, yeah. exactly. So you may have a transition period that you have to go through to adjust to that smaller number of vehicles on the road, but ultimately you may get to something similar to the current sales pace, just turning over a smaller number of vehicles more quickly. Actually, I like that idea, but I want to hear Mustafa what your thoughts are well, on that. I, you know, I go back to my childhood and living in a family that had one car, but a driver. And the driver took everybody to different locations, and the car really didn't sit idle very much. But the minute, you know, we got old enough to get jobs, and everybody went out and bought a car. When you look at the U.S., you know, infrastructure, it's built around a car. You know, so, yes, you're right, Uber and Lyft and others have really taken off. But they're really in cities. You know, if you live out in suburbia, you're still going to need a car. So I think, you know, to some extent, where you're going to see more intensive use of cars is in the cities. I don't see that dramatic change coming to suburbia yet. And therefore, you know, when I look at the market in New York or San Francisco, they didn't buy a lot of cars anyway. So to the extent that they now can have car sharing and to some extent avoid the cost of parking and everything else that goes that you may actually get more cars being sold. Hmm, very interesting. Charlie, any ideas? Well, I think all of that's true, and I, I would just add to that that with all of this new technology that's coming, this, this uh, driver assist technology to make vehicles that much more safer, uh, that we should see insurance rates come down. And I, I, having two teenage drivers myself, I would love to see a much uh, smaller insurance uh, policy uh, rate than what we're doing today. Uh, and that's just going to add to the affordability of vehicles. So I think there's certainly this threat that these driverless cars and uh, shared driving are going to be very disruptive for the industry. But I'm kind of optimistic like these two that I think that we're really going to see uh, the vehicle industry just hum along quite nicely in, in this environment. You know, Emily, I like what you're saying of turning these cars over much more quickly, using them up much more quickly. You know, I still remember back in the 50s and the well, I don't remember the 50s so much, but I certainly remember the 60s. And it was the annual styling change. I mean, the styling of cars changed almost every year. Do you think we could get back closer to something like that? Well, I don't think that ever went away entirely. Um, we have a lot of vehicles that are traded in, um, not because they don't run anymore, but because you want either new styling or, in today's world, new content, right? New features um, that are in the vehicle that, that sort of motivate that, that turnover. So I think that's always going to be a feature of, of the market. Vehicles are still a very aspirational purchase in a lot of aspects. They very much are. That's right. Let's step back and look a, a little bit at the, the whole world. Uh, and, and you got to look at China. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the biggest car market in the world. Mustafa, why don't you address this first? I keep reading reports that the Chinese economy is slowing down. And then I look at car sales, and I cannot <laughs> believe how red hot they are. In fact, uh, towards the end of 2016, on a monthly basis, China was selling as many new cars as France does in an entire year. So is China slowing down or is it not? But... Uh, again, China is really not that different from other countries. They know that the auto industry really is driving their economy to some extent. It's auto, it's housing, and residential construction. So as they try to address the bubble that's developing in the residential market, they want something to drive economic growth. And that's why you saw a sharp cut in their consumption tax on vehicles. And you're right. I mean, when we started... This year, I was talking about a 26.5 million industry in China. 
it's likely to end up closer to 27.5 million, partially driven by this ta tax cut that they have right now. Tax and, cut on cars. On cars. And they're leaving it very uncertain whether it will expire at the end of the year. So people are buying ahead of potential expiration of this tax cut. But overall, I mean, you know, China, if you look at from the perspective of car ownership per hundred or per thousand people, it's still very low. So that market really does have a lot of room to grow. And to the extent that it's a pillar industry to the economy, the government is making sure that its policies don't hurt the growth of this industry. So I re remain very optimistic in China. Maybe the year, you know, days of 20% growth per year are over, but 5 to 10%, definitely, yeah. Um, Emily, how do you see China? Well, I think China is slowing, and it's slowing in a structural way. In other words, there's a long-run downward trend for economic growth in China, and that's because they're moving away from some of the capital-intensive heavy industries, things like steel. They're restructuring those sectors, but they're moving toward a consumer and service oriented economy. Um, automobile, automobiles are still a consumer product, so I think for our sector that's not necessarily bad news, but it is an adjustment period that the Chinese economy is going through, and so that's why you do see signs of certain indicators that are showing weakness. It's, it's that adjustment going on. Charlie, do you think we might see a big drop-off in sales if they pull this tax cut off car sales? Well, if they do let it expire at the end of the year, I think we will see uh, a little bit of a pullback in China you know, for the first time in a long time. But as Mustafa was saying, the fundamentals are still there in China, that with or without a tax cut, the penetration rates of, the, of ownership in the country are still very, very low. There's still a growing uh, per capita incomes there, a growing middle class. Uh, it's a vehicle market that's still on an upward trajectory uh, for a number of years uh, yet to come. Okay, keep going. What about the rest of the world? Looks to me like Europe's getting back on its feet. Maybe Europe, Europe's had nice. Latin uh, America has finally hit bottom. Uh, you, you look at some of the big countries like uh, Brazil. It appears that the worst is maybe behind it. That we should see positive economic growth uh, next year. That's sort of the expectation. Uh, similar story in Russia. You know, the global story is actually quite optimistic when you look into 2017. Uh, stronger economic growth here in the U.S., as well as some of these other uh, emerging markets. We should see vehicle sales uh, surpass 90 million units globally next year. Uh, and so uh, it really, I th think, remains an optimistic outlook for the industry as a whole. And when you say uh, 94 million, you said, is uh, that? 90 million. 90 million. That's light vehicles? Light that, vehicles. Light yeah. vehicles. So not the big semis and buses and all that. No, you can yeah, go even higher. Yeah, even higher. Mustafa, what do you well, say? Uh, again, it's pretty much the same story. I mean, the, the two centers of real strength are North America and China. Europe is coming back very nicely. Uh, you know, there was a lot of concern with Brexit and everything else. You couldn't tell from car sales. That's a big political event took place. Once you get beyond those three, you're right, South America looks like it's bottomed out. I don't have a conviction that the turnaround is there. Hmm. Um, same with Russia. I mean, you know, you can't go down much further, but are you seeing a turn up yet? I'm not convinced of that. So I think <clears throat> at least for the next year, will be very reliant on those three centers, you know. U.S., uh, Europe, and China. China. No, North America. Uh, North Europe America. Okay. I, I can go back to what Charlie said before, that Mexico has been growing very strongly and is about, to, you know, approaching Canadian level of sales. And the growth in Mexico is sufficient to say that North America will have another record year this year. Mm -hmm. Emily, what do you see for the global automotive market? Well, I, I, I agree that in general the best 
baseline <laughs> forecast for 2017 is probably one of you know modest increases for global sales. I would say that there are still some significant risks on the horizon. One is that commodity prices remain volatile, and so for some of the emerging market economies, a real robust recovery without support from the commodity sector may be challenging, and it may be delayed, depending what happens with, with prices this year. And in Europe, we still have a bit of political uncertainty, a lot of key elections taking place in many of those markets in 2017, and so that has the potential um, for disruption, although, as Mustafa mentioned, Brexit so far has not created that disruption, at least not as far as auto sales. We still have some important negotiations yet to come on that, so there may be another shoe yet to drop. That's another one that we're watching really closely. That's a good point, because even though the Brexit vote took place, really nothing's changed not from, uh, from a structural standpoint. Okay, real quick, we're down to the end. 2017, what's your outlook for the U.S. car market? So we're calling for 17.7 million units. Our number includes medium and heavy trucks. Okay, Mustafa, how do you uh, see it? Pretty much a range of 17 and a half to 18 total. Mm -hmm. Oh, up to 18 maybe even. Well, you know, if you had to press me, I'd go back where Emily was at 17.7, but I think there's an upside if some of the tax cuts begin to materialize some of the infrastructure spending, and, you know, consumer confidence stays up like it is. And your number would include heavy-duty yeah. trucks, too? Okay, and Charlie, how do you see it? Well, at OESA, we don't officially do a forecast, but I'd say our outlook is generally that we're looking at a flat year, year over year, so probably in the 17.4 million range for, uh, for light vehicles. But I would say the risk around that still remains, that uh, depending on the policies that are implemented uh, from Trump, we might see much stronger sales if that tax cut actually goes through. Uh, and we might see uh, sales dip a bit if we see protectionism implemented that might have an impact uh, on trade and, and certainly uh, the global vehicle market in general. Well, I, I love when you say, oh, yeah, we're hitting a plateau. It's only going to be about 17.4 to 17.7 million. I have to remind the audience that is a torrent pace. That means the industry is running flat out. Mm -hmm. So not all that bad. Yeah. John, John, the way I try to say it is in the 90s, 15 and a half was where you know, as sort of good. average. Well, in the 2000s, it was 16 and a half. 17 and a half looks very good. That's right. Well, remember, population keeps increasing. There's more people to buy cars. Look, with that, we're going to have to, to cut it off and wrap this up. But Emily Kalinske-Morris from the Ford Motor Company, Mustafa Mahatarin from General Motors, Charles Chesborough from the OESA, I want to thank all three of you for sharing so much brilliant insight into what's going on. Thank you, John. Thank, thank you, John. You, John.